0: Hello, and welcome back to The Annex. My name is Coy, and I want to apologize for the delay that we've had since our last episode. Uh, trying to go a little bit more frequently coming up. Uh, as everyone knows, everyone's busy. But um, today we have Simon Chernan back on again. Going to be talking some more mob talk, volume two. And I think I'm going to leave it at that for now. So without further ado, enjoy uh, this sit down with myself and Simon Churnin talking some mob talk. Hey everybody, hope everyone's well. Yeah, I don't really care so much, but at least Simon does. Um. (laughs) It's
1: just a a beautiful day and I hope everyone's enjoying the weekend. It's
0: true, yes, it is a beautiful day. It's the marathon day in Toronto.
1: Oh, is the marathon going on today?
0: Yeah, that was what was going on today. Oh nice, Catherine's running in that. Oh really? Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah she going to go under two hours, break a new record?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I think she's going for a good run. Yeah? But I'm not sure she's out there to... I, 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 I'm not sure her goal is out there to break records. Okay. But she very well could. Uh, she's skilled. She's a very skilled runner.
0: It's true. You never know. You never really know. As, uh, as the great American philosopher Kevin Garnett once said, anything is possible.
1: Um, That's absolutely true Uh, uh, Kevin Garnett, one of the finest basketball players of our generation
0: It's true Without much argument Um, But today I wanted to talk about I think we're going to be doing a little bit of a mob talk Return to the mob talk uh, Mob talk 2 Sure,
1: sure, we certainly can
0: Um, Last time we were talking a bit about Scorsese's uh, upcoming film
1: (laughs) Uh, the Irishman, yes. Yeah. Uh, still very much looking forward to that being dropped.
0: Yeah, it's still not out, unfortunately. It it's to be
1: dropped on Netflix, you said, uh, November mm-hmm. something.
0: November something. I mean, we're in Canada, so it's probably a different um, time frame than the American release. I know that actually I just heard that um, Netflix rented out a Broadway theater to screen The Irishman. Really? Because, really? yeah, because the cinemas were kind of being jerks about, like, not giving them enough of it. Like, they wanted a very short run before they released it on Netflix. And the cinemas were like, no, it needs to be a minimum of, like, a four- or six-week run. And huh. so Netflix was like, all right, we'll just, like, rent our own theater and do it. Well, they can certainly afford it, uh, Netflix
1: yeah. being one of the big technology companies these days. Although, Disney Plus is dropping soon. Uh, Disney Plus is dropping soon, and they have yeah. quite a bit of content.
0: It's going to be huge. I think they're already starting to do ads on um Sunday football. I think that means that they're they're in their final marketing push.
1: That is perhaps right. Uh, Sunday football is very, very popular. Watched amongst uh, mainstream Americans, and including uh, myself as a Canadian.
0: I just called my grandfather, 94-year-old uh, veteran, and he answered the photos like so loud in the background. He says, one second, one second, my football's on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I was also watching football earlier today, uh, following my uh, fantasy team.
0: Uh-huh. I'm sure everyone wants to hear about that. Probably our only listeners are part of the same league, so. Well, that's true. That's true. Uh, so
1: far, so good today. Actually, uh, looks okay. like I'm set up for a big win. Ooh, exciting! So quite, quite happy about that. But I mean, there's a lot of luck involved here, frankly. That's true. That's uh, true. Yeah, I'd say any given Sunday, sort of situation.
0: We fight for that inch. Every inch, yes. Yeah. Yes. And at the end of the day, when you add up all those inches, <laughs> that's the difference between winning and losing.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure that's <laughs> quite what Al Pacino said in his uh, famous speech from uh, 1999's uh, Any Given Sunday by Oliver Stone. Oh, I can guarantee but, that
0: that was his closing statement, when you add up all those itches.
1: Well, that was uh, his uh, locker room speech to, uh, to inspire his team. Yeah, exactly. It's a great one. But I believe uh, his, uh, his, his last statement was that uh, he was uh, not retiring after all, and uh, shocked the league by saying that he was leaving the Sharks and uh, becoming the new uh, general manager and head coach of an Albuquerque franchise, and that he was going to be signing Willie Beeman. And then
0: in the sequel to Any Given Sunday 2, uh, he gets in trouble for t- tweeting in support of uh, Democratic protests. Well, <laughs> 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 well, there is no one, Any Given Sunday 2
1: that's uh, not a film that, that uh, has been released, although I'd be interested in seeing it. It's been sitting so, in but, the but can for But I think you're thinking while. about Rockets GM Daryl Morey.
0: Oh, no, yeah, that's right. No, yeah, I was. Yeah, that's yeah. who I was thinking yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. Close.
1: Uh, Not far away. Yeah.
0: Pacino, Mori, you know, similar, similar people. But uh, They have some similarities. They both work on stats.
1: They do. They do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I very much enjoying this coffee that you made here. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, or a... as many people call it a Café au lait.
0: Well, you know, we're at Center Ice Café, where we do most of our recording. Um... At one point, it was searchable on Google, so, you know, if anyone wants to drop by Sunrise Cafe, Mm -hmm. our chef de cuisine, Zach Tucker-Abramson, is uh, Mm -hmm. currently out, but, um, you know, I'm the stand-in barista, as it were.
1: That's true, but what if I was here for cuisine? I mean, if the chef de cuisine is out, well then, wouldn't cuisine be out entirely? Well, we'll we'll have to see what
0: the catch of the day is. You know, Sebastian will be back soon with the catch of the day.
1: Ah, that's very true. Yeah. That's very true. He could drag in some old smoked salmon mm-hmm. that's discarded on the street.
0: Yeah, or even uh, some fresh bird. You know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> He's done it uh, before. Some fowl, so to speak. Mm, yeah, yeah, freshly caught fowl. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Excellent.
1: Well, we'll just have to see how that plays out.
0: Yeah, we'll wait for. It. We'll wait for. It. If we hear a little bell in the background, that might be that might be Sebastian bringing in the catch of the day. Mwah! <laughs> um. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, so for Mob Talk too, I'm interested So w- what we said right before We start recording As we usually do We plan this 30 seconds before Turning on the microphones um, I Yes, it's, yeah, so
1: it's the kind of thing It's not really pre-planned It's more like You mm-hmm. know, a free-flow conversation Yeah um, Without, you know Much cue cards uh, You know Set out ahead of time
0: Maybe one day One day maybe There'll be cue cards But That'll be a long way off From the looks of it Well, I think that that's right
1: first enough to to
0: gather an audience. uh... (laughs) (laughs) First things first, you need an audience. Yeah, it's the usual way of things. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, until then. Until then. Yes, yes, Um, yes. Until then, of course. You know, we were talking about the mob a little bit last time, and we might fall into talking about specifics, but I think what I'm kind of interested in, because you've talked about it in the past, and, um, you know, there are these existing shows and movies that are all about mostly the New York mob. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the Chicago mob is becoming a bit more popular. Um, you have Atlantic City, which was... Um,
1: the basis for Boardwalk Empire. Basis for Boardwalk a Empire. very popular
0: television show,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which I only saw the first couple of seasons. Mm-hmm. But I do recall they introduced a number of... Uh, very famous characters, like yeah. such as a young Lucky Luciano, for example, yeah, or a young Al Capone, for example. Exactly,
0: yeah. And so that's the kind of interesting thing is that when you watch, you can watch from all these different angles, and they all kind of have the perspective of either a police officer or one of the, you know, one of the families or gangs. And if it's a big enough, broad enough story, you usually get some overlap into another major character that there's lots of movies or TV shows about them. Sure. Because it's this sure. idea that they're all kind of in the same period for the most part, you know, within the same few decades. And they're all kind of interconnected because they were kind of a business network or it was like a sector almost, an industry. Um, and then, of course, we have...
1: Well, I mean, if you look at the famous Appalachian Conference uh, in 1959, which was a complete uh, complete disaster. And this was organized by uh, Vito Genovese, eh? Uh, head of the mm-hmm. what later became known as the Genovese crime family. Okay. But effectively, I mean, what happened there at the Appalachian Conference, and sorry, I referred to it as 1959, as 1957. Okay. Uh, he called a meeting of all the heads of the major crime families across the country mm-hmm. uh, to discuss uh, the, his consolidation of power of the Genovese family okay. and to work out any sort of disputes. And this was in a small town, and local police got suspicious <laughs> of these... <laughs> Individuals kind of wearing, you know, like you know, black suits and whatnot. All you know, and, double you know, breasted and like, like you hmm. know, double breasted. Like you know, everyone is all kind of decked out. You know, wearing you know, big pinky rings, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, going into this, uh, you know, conference room effectively. Okay. Uh, and so they busted it up, and a number of folks were arrested, and this was a major, major embarrassment for Vito Genovese. Because he didn't. Uh, control and it also them. kind of exposed nationally the fact that there is this national crime syndicate. Because this meeting was calling mm. meetings from the you know, the boss of Kansas City, for example, uh, mm. or the boss of Buffalo, for example, right? Uh, Stefano Magadino, a very very powerful boss at one point. He, just... In fact, he controlled Ontario for a certain period of time.
0: Well, you're right. I was about, and I was about to say is that you know it's not just America that there are Canadian. Uh, families and Canadian mobs that are also interconnected with this business right there's Montreal there's oh uh, big time big time and, I mean there's been the Montreal, Montreal more,
1: Mafia yeah. war that's been taking place uh, really since 2009 and uh, it's been uh, incredibly fascinating to follow I mean because uh, you read headlines that uh, really harken back to older headlines that you know one might have seen you know 40 50 years ago mm-hmm. about you know a famous mob boss getting you know shot in the eye at a barber shop. Well, no. this sort of stuff is, you know, happening today in Montreal.
0: It's crazy. And, I an mean... a-
1: and power has not been consolidated yet. In fact, nobody really knows who's really in charge of the Montreal underworld right now. Really? Yes. Interesting. I mean, you have powerful players. you got the bikers, certainly. Yeah. You have the Haitian street gangs. Mm-hmm. You have the West End Gang, mainly made of uh, Irish individuals. Okay. Uh, and then there's the Montreal Mafia. But but, but in terms of who's controlling the Montreal Mafia... That's very hard to say at this point.
2: Hmm.
0: So it's this kind of it's it's collectively Italian, but no one really knows the specifics of
1: who's running it. That's effectively right. Yes. Hmm. Uh, The old power that uh, used to be under Vito Rizzuto, uh, it's it's no longer kind of been consolidated in the fashion that it was, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and uh, Ontario uh, uh, Calabrian gangs. I've also got a foot in the door in Montreal as well.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And so in terms of really who's in charge, there's various alliances that have been uh, shifting over time. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it's it's quite hard to tell as an outsider.
0: Sure. Which is why we have to get in undercover. Well, let's... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think if we were to, uh, to, to do that, I think we should probably sign up with law enforcement first and... Whoa, whoa, whoa. We get some sort of legal protections for going undercover. Otherwise, we would just simply be soldiers within the Montreal mafia, no?
0: No, maybe like journalists. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, they typically don't go undercover. This isn't like, say, Donnie Brasco, for example, who right. was undercover for six years in the Bonanno crime family. That, right. that's, that's the FBI's greatest coup they when it comes to guy. having an undercover agent. Uh, he was uh, this close, and the, uh, the audience can't see me right now, but with my fingers... They're it, real close. Like, real close to have, to have being uh, made a made man in the banana crime family. All he had to do was whack somebody, and he would have been made.
0: But he couldn't because he's a cop.
1: Uh, but he couldn't because he was an FBI agent. Right. And eventually they, uh, they pulled uh, him from the operation, and uh, a number of people were arrested, and uh, he testified against dozens of persons and... Uh, Hundreds of uh, man hours of incarceration were set out as a result of his investigation.
0: All right, we've fallen back into Al Pacino again.
1: That that's mm-hmm. sort of true. That's sort of true. Uh, in the film, there's Al Pacino mm-hmm. who plays uh, Lefty Ruggiero,
0: who vouched for him, right? He was kind of who his his sort mentor. of vouched
1: for him, but the truth is, he was actually always sort of really, really close to Sonny Black from the very start. Sonny Black, Napolitano.
0: Okay, like the ice cream.
1: Um, the Napolitano ice cream? I think you're thinking about Neapolitan ice cream. Oh, okay, thinking.
0: sorry, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, which has uh, chocolate, uh, vanilla, and strawberry.
0: Marge. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, yeah, somebody obviously in the that episode of The Simpsons ate all the chocolate ones.
0: Yeah, and so. need more Neapolitan ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, so we have um we have like the the m- current current unrest in Montreal, which is really interesting. And I mean even when I was in school in Montreal, I kind of came there and it would have been about mid-aughts, I guess you would call it 2005-ish when I went to school there, mm-hmm. university, and people were telling us or I was I was hearing that, you know, much of the city was kind of run by criminal enterprises, and uh, by the time I left around 2010, there were uh, lots of um, lots of businesses down in Saint Laurent getting burned down, and people yep. were saying that this was due to like this kind of mob thing that was going on. There was some um, mobsters that were being arrested in the newspapers while I was there, and um, the one of the big things that was happening, which wasn't directly mob but it was kind of like the impact outcome of mob money and control was that all of the overpasses and bridges and tunnels were starting to fall apart because the mob had just skimmed so much off of these contracts for the government city Our construction contracts.
1: is a major money maker for the mob yes
0: and so you had this extensive infrastructure just failing because it was now only a few decades old and it was just done so poorly and cars were being crushed it was like kind of crazy stuff like Yep. Uh, tunnel yeah. ceilings coming down on cars and stuff. It really really kind of
1: Well, I mean, it was crazy. as a result of effectively uh, the construction industry being paralyzed yeah. by what was happening with the mob.
0: Right, which would have been a few decades earlier, but obviously it was still ongoing, and Montreal was just kind of largely controlled by, uh, one could say, corruption, vaguely.
1: Uh, it it was, it was. Uh, I mean, they were controlled by the Rizzuto family for a good 30 years. Okay. And uh they had uh strong ties with the police, they had ties with mm-hmm. City Hall. Uh so they had so sort of the sort of classical ties that uh mobsters at one point in the US had, but they right. still but they still maintain this sort of power in the city of Montreal.
0: Which is pretty impressive in today's world.
1: Uh it it is, it is. Uh they also uh amassed billions of dollars in wealth, by the way.
0: That's pretty urat.
1: Primarily through drug trafficking uh, right. and construction, but really primarily through drug trafficking.
0: Right. Well, because Montreal is this big port, right? Because yes. it connects. Yes. It's like the last port from that a major ocean liner can hit from the sea into North America. And then from there, you're really close to the Vermont border, I think it is. New York or Vermont. And so uh-huh. you
1: sort of had this real alliance between the Montreal Mafia, the Irish gangs which controlled the port, mm-hmm. uh, Haitian street gangs, And the bikers, uh, the hells mainly.
0: And were they the ones who kind of controlled transport?
1: Uh, The mafia really were the ones who have the international connections in order to bring in large amounts of drugs. Okay. so So you want to bring in one ton of cocaine or one ton of heroin, something like that. Yeah. It's really uh, the Italians who have the international connections in order to do that, okay. Uh, especially with uh, South American gangs and Mexican gangs as well. Okay. Uh, the bikers and the, the Haitian street gangs uh, and the Irish were the ones who would distribute drugs.
0: Okay. And then, when it comes in to Montreal, who's getting it across the border? Is that the mafia, or is that being handed off to, um, like the the bikers, or <coughs> <coughs> sure. Excuse me.
1: Uh, in terms of uh, drugs being brought across the border, mm-hmm. no, that would be all sorts of parties, frankly. Okay. But, but it was often the mafia. Okay. Yes, uh, shipping drugs down to New York City. Right. And uh, for distribution across the East Coast.
0: Well, in Boardwalk Empire, I mean, one of the opening credits of Boardwalk Empire is um, all the bottles washing up on, onto the shore, which is how a lot of the Canadians would send the whiskey over to the... The crime. So, this let's actually picking up from there. Now that I think of it, you know, there's this really funny thing in Canadian history um, and American history. And in America, the side of it is uh, prohibition, Um, alcohol is made illegal, and then you have this rampant boom of illegal alcohol, and it becomes this massive industry. And now, would you say that that has a lot to do with how these Criminal organizations were able to become so embedded in the, the society, and you
1: hit the nail right on the head in the sense that uh, these criminal organizations, largely before prohibition,
0: mm-hmm. were some of them
1: were quite sophisticated, mm-hmm. but really they were street gangs. They were sophisticated street gangs. Okay, prohibition changed everything uh, because of the fact that legitimate persons, including again police, politicians. Right, Uh, legitimate businessmen wanted to continue to drink, right, Uh, and so you know formed ties with these mobsters, and Mm -hmm. these ties then led into other sorts of joint ventures, right, Uh, and also it was the real big money maker for the mob,
0: right, because they had uh, in in the sense they monopolized the market for for as long as prohibition existed, which allowed them to build up this capital.
1: That's basically right Uh, and allowed them to build up a huge base of capital, Mm -hmm. which allowed them to spread, uh, get involved in other rackets. Right. Uh, And now these guys are, you know, multi-multi-millionaires when before they were more street criminals before that, uh, before the advent of prohibition.
0: And they have connections with um, people of power both in the private and public sectors. Uh, Uh, They uh, sure do. And likely there's that connection with once you get into... if Once alcohol becomes illegal, then it becomes similar to prostitution. And as you're saying, everything kind of gets mixed up, whether it's legitimate or illegitimate business. You get the capacity to work together on positive, mutually beneficial terms or on coerced terms like blackmail or bribery.
1: Sure, sure.
0: And yeah. So this is kind of the beginning of when the North American crime became... Supercharged and kind of w- what began what we know of as, or we look of as in, in The Godfather and all this stuff, is like the golden age of these criminals and these crime organizations. Uh, in, uh,
1: in, term, in terms of the form of f- fomenting modern organized crime, you can really trace that back to prohibition.
0: Okay, interesting. Yes. And what's really interesting about that is that at the same time this was happening in America, in Canada, alcohol was fully legal still. And so a lot, yes. of, a lot of the uh, exporters from Canada, those who imported to the States, they were legitimate businesses, I think even including Labatt, if I'm not mistaken. Uh,
1: these were legitimate businesses. Uh, a lot of it was good Canadian whiskey. Right. Uh, the Bronfman family uh, was heavily involved. Okay. Uh, they're the ones who owned uh, Seagram's, which was uh, one of the biggest liquor companies in the world. Wow. And uh, they made a fortune off of prohibition in terms of selling right. whiskey to gangsters, who effectively then brought it across the border. They themselves wouldn't get involved in sort of the criminal distribution aspects, right? More just in terms of wholesaling it. To- wholesaling
0: it to people who it's obvious to a country where it's obviously illegal. Like I mean, there's a definite aspect there. There's a there's a there's a key aspect there where it is sure yes shady, yes, yes. But it's a it's a Canadian business selling to an international business person, whoever that may be, that international business person happens to be from a country where the product they're buying is illegal.
1: Uh, That's absolutely right.
0: And so I guess depending on which of these uh, Canadian businesses, there's probably lots of them at various levels, right? Um, And some of them were more or less connected with the illegal aspect of getting it across the border or how how much their quote-unquote Connected to or knowledgeable of the illegal activities after the sales.
1: Sure, sure. And a lot of them acted with plausible deniability in terms of mm-hmm. selling it off to middlemen who right. were the ones who had criminal connections, but they could just say, hey, you know, I sold it off to uh, Coy.
2: Who's a uh, Canadian. He's uh, totally fine. You
1: know, who's a Canadian. Uh, you know, he distributes right. liquor, and uh, I had no idea that he was distributing this across the border. And this yeah. is a total shock to us. Just happened to be buying thousands of crates a week. <laughs> well, we thought about, we
0: just, well, we just thought he had a problem. <laughs> yeah. well, it sounds, it's funny because it's similar to the opioid crisis in a way, right? I mean, these uh, this is a big point, not to go too far into the current presidential election, but in the Democratic um, primaries, I know that Elizabeth Warren and a lot of other uh, candidates who are running for president right now are talking about the drug companies and how they were just supplying huge amounts of opium, opioids, to uh, Middle America.
1: Uh, the drug companies uh, played a huge part in the crisis. Yes,
0: and technically it's legal. They had some plausible deniability. I mean, it's coming out that actually they probably were more explicit, explicitly involved in how horrible it was than they might want to have been now that it's coming well, all out. Well, but. well
1: I, 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 I mean, it's similar in some ways to cigarettes in the sense that mm. mm-hmm. what's really coming out is that these companies were marketing these products, these opioid products in right. the 1990s right. uh, as being safe for use and non-addictive. Right. But what we now know is that the, they knew that that wasn't really true, right? frankly, and that they were just trying to push this product. Uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical, uh, Quebec-based firm, was really at the heart of this whole thing. Actually, Going back recently to fired, again. they uh, recently fired. They uh, recently filed for bankruptcy. Oh wow! Uh, as a result of all these lawsuits, hmm. uh, but uh, they were marketing these products as being safe, and sort of like cigarettes. When they finally nailed the cigarette companies and say, uh, if you ever watched the film The Insider, for example, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Russell Crowe, it's a great, it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Pacino as well, actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're circling Al Pacino today.
1: Yeah, uh, you know uh, the cigarette companies, you know, were marketing cigarettes as being safe, right? Uh, when they knew they were not safe,
0: right? Frankly, but a and, big difference. And, and that's
1: sort of how you get them in these lawsuits.
0: Well, and a big difference between the cigarettes and the opioids, I guess. And I'm not a hundred percent sure in America, but I know that a lot of the opioids in America, you couldn't just buy off the shelf; you needed a prescription. And that's a kind of key difference between cigarettes and these opioids.
1: That's true. You had numerous doctors. Uh, like I, 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 I mean, in terms of the opioid crisis, I mean, there's all sorts of different culprits here. Yeah. I mean, you had doctors, you had pharmacies, you had doctors prescribing thousands of uh, pills to individual patients, for example.
0: Right, who obviously were just selling them.
1: Uh, who obviously were just selling them, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the pharmacies might give doctors kickbacks. All sorts of schemes like that were taking place. Right. Right, uh, and are still taking place
0: today, which is interesting because it's happen- That's all happening within America. Whereas going back to the Prohibition, we're talking about something that's happening across national borders between two sovereign uh, states, and so the the private interests could at least they had a lot more potential for this plausible deniability. Sure, because it's a well, sure. it's a different country. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, well, what what do we know?
1: Well well, 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 sure, yes. I mean, like, you know, a company like Seagram's was completely uh, legitimate, mm-hmm. uh, or at least seemingly completely legitimate. Right. Uh, but, you know, would sell to shady characters who would then bring uh, booze across the border mm-hmm. uh, and uh, distribute this across the United States.
0: There's a lot of families that aren't even necessarily uh, distillers uh, who made their fortunes Canadians by being rum runners, just by. By being some of the many thousands of Canadians who took the alcohol across the border, just where those yes. that single yes. part of the operation could could make a family rich for generations, and people in Canada who are now very wealthy families can trace their wealth back to being part of the smuggling.
1: Well, well that's absolutely right, uh, and it greatly enriched. As we're discussing greatly enriched uh, mobsters in the United States and increased their power.
0: And this is also where we start to create connections potentially between Canada and America Sure. in terms of the mob. Sure, sure, yes. Hmm. Uh,
1: I mean, the most powerful mobster in the United States for a number of years in the 1930s was Joe Masseria. Uh, he controlled New York. Okay. Uh, but uh, there was an Italian immigrant from uh, Sicily, uh, Salvatore Maranzano, who decided to challenge his power. Okay. And so this effectively divided the city and resulted in a, a full-scale mafia war.
0: What what period are we talking?
1: This is the 1930s. Okay. Uh and so this was res- and so this resulted in a full-scale mafia war was taking place. Mm-hmm. Uh between these two parties. Uh Lucky Luciano uh was slashed, shot uh and ended up surviving. the oh, wow. reasons he was called Lucky. Right. But uh he was uh he worked for Joe Masseria. Okay. Uh, and you know, kind of half the town of mobsters worked for Maranzano, half of the town of mobsters worked for Masseria. Okay. And eventually, it was Lucky Luciano and uh, the Young Turks, as uh, some people called them, uh, very, very sophisticated criminals mm-hmm. uh, who were working, uh, also working with Jewish mobsters very, very heavily. Okay. Because uh, they weren't prejudiced as were uh, Masseria and Maranzano. Okay. In the sense that they wanted to work with Jewish mobsters. Mm-hmm. Lucky Luciano uh initially worked for uh Arnold Rothstein, uh who was a uh a Jewish gangster in uh, New York. Okay. Uh and uh Luciano had uh, he, uh amongst his best friends uh were folks like Meyer Lansky for example.
0: Okay, Meyer Lansky.
1: Um and So they came up with a plan that they were, they they basically went to Maranzano and uh, said that, you know, we'll take out Masseria and Mm. and we want to end this war because this war is not good for business.
0: And Maranzano is the
1: Sicilian. Maranzano was the the Sicilian. Okay. Yes. And and he was gaining power in the city. Okay. Uh, And so these guys uh, decided to take out their own boss, Masseria. Wow. Which they did. Okay. Maranzano then then declared himself to be the Capo de Tutti Capo. So basically the... uh, Captain of all captains. So basically the head of the mafia in New York. Right. But this was only step one of Luciano's plan.
0: Oh. Interesting. Step
1: two of Luciano's plan was to take out Maranzano.
0: So first he had to take out one side.
1: First he had to take out one side. Then these guys decided to take out Maranzano. Mm-hmm. uh Maranzano obviously uh was paranoid about potentially being uh you know attacked sure and so actually what happened is that uh yeah in his offices in New York uh he was uh, raided by uh treasury agents it was actually six jewish mobsters oh, who wow. went in there with fake badges and uh ended up stabbing and bludgeoning Maranzano to death Wow. This was on the orders of uh, Luciano.
0: Fake cops, wow.
1: Yes. Uh, and then Luciano and uh, Meyer Lansky and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Uh, he's uh, very famous, of course, for uh, having built a flamingo hotel in Las Vegas and really was kind of you know, the uh, inspiration behind uh, the character Mo Green in The Godfather. Okay. Uh, but uh, Luciano uh, then decided to create a new mob structure to govern New York. Okay. Made up of five families, and so, that structure still exists today.
0: So that idea was Luciano's idea, or the whole yeah.
1: It was basically Luciano and Meyer Lansky's idea. Yes, mm. I mean you would you would Luciano with Meyer Lansky kind of whispering into his ear, because the idea was they wanted to create this into a business. Because right. war is bad for business. Right. I mean, like we want to make money, and we also don't want to walk down the street, having to turn our heads around every five minutes, thinking we're going to get shot.
0: Right, and so this is also a change from being just street gangs into being true organized crime.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, and so the city was effectively split up, uh, not by borough, but split up effectively by territory in the sense that uh, five gangs then were operating the city. Okay. Uh, today they're known as the Columbos, the Bananos, the Gambinos, uh, the Genoveses, and the Luccheses.
0: Okay, but they they've kind of evolved and shifted over time.
1: Uh, they've well, they've certainly evolved and shifted over time. Uh, the names of those gangs were from uh, the uh, Estes Kefauver he- hearings in nineteen sixty. These were uh, Senate hearings about organized crime. Okay. And uh, each one of the families, uh, the head the head of the family at the time. Yeah. Uh, basically, these these organized crime groups, which never really had names before. Oh, okay. They ended up taking on the names of whoever was in charge in 1960, okay. Basically, and so therefore, the Genovese crime family, for example, really was the Luciano crime family.
0: Okay.
1: And so Luciano was in charge at one point before he was deported to Sicily. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But Vito Genovese was in charge in 1960, and so that's why that gang is still called the Genovese.
0: Interesting.
1: Uh, Carlo Gambino was a uh, head of the Gambino family. At the, uh, so sorry, was well, it was head of a powerful organized crime family, which then became known as the Gambinos.
0: So that's really interesting because studying in in classical theater and looking at the history of feudalism in Europe, um you have this interesting thing where um, like up until very recently, there wasn't any such thing as like a a capital of a country. The capital didn't really... There was no capital. The capital was just wherever the king was. And so right. wherever the king of England was, was effectively the capital because um, quite quite accurately, the king was England. And so if the king was in Windsor, then Windsor's the capital. If he's in London, then London's the capital, etc.
1: Well, Louis XIV was once asked, uh, what is the state? He said... Uh, it's, it's- C'est moi. Yeah,
0: I am the state. Exactly. The state, yes. It's me. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, or as um, Queen Elizabeth once said, I am England, I think, is a, like a great, uh, which right. would have been the right. 1600s. Um, so you had this interesting thing where we think of, of states, nation states, as these kind of set things, whereas feudalism was much closer in many ways to organized crime in this way of just kind of like loose affiliations of people who kind of share territory based on whoever has the power to control their bounds. And there's usually some rough... Uh, the borders are not clean. There's a lot of like back and forth on the borders depending on who has more power or who's has more influence or making a deal. Uh, and a lot of retribution if someone tries to overstep their bounds. And that's kind of... Sure, yes, yes. It's like different... Um, It'd be kind of like different gases of or different types of pressure in a space, right? There's like a kind of delineation, but it's not a straight line like we think of modern nation states.
1: And as they're talking about in terms of protecting themselves, uh, the idea with the five families is that they set it up as a mob board of directors. Mm-hmm. They wanted it to operate almost as a corporation, okay. in the sense that you had the commission, which, is which why was with the commission was comprised of the heads of those five families,
0: and that's why you have an odd
1: number then. And Yes, yes, and the commission could vote on various items.
0: And it can never be, because Uh, it's odd, it'll never be a And you also also can't,
1: and in order to protect themselves, Mm -hmm. so that what happened to Masseria and Maranzano don't (laughs) simply just happen to them by a number of young, you know, other younger gangsters, Mm -hmm. Uh, the idea is that uh, you can't whack out a member of the commission unless the rest of the commission gives you permission to do so. Right. Otherwise, they'll whack you out. Right.
0: It's also And uh, similar. that
1: structure stayed in place for quite some
0: time. Well, and do you know how much he was also considering, for example, like the doges of Venice? Because the doge of Venice was this very interesting, you had like powerful families in Venice, and they would vote for the doge, D-O-G-E, who would become the effective king of Venice um, until he died. And then there'd be another vote within just that community of, I think it was only five or seven. Um, But it was a similar thing. Like only the members of those families had any vote and they would protect each other from any other group trying to come up. They were all capitalists. They were just traitors. Uh, And they were that, like it was the Doge and these powerful families in Venice that were able to keep Venice an independent city state for Mm. so long because they controlled the city and the city was, the number one most important trading port in all of Europe. It sure was. It sure was. So no king. So you had to keep some, uh, stability there. They in had order stability to
1: maintain their commercial. Mm-hmm. They needed
0: stability for commercial, but also build, because build, they build, had building, so much commerce. Wealth. No king, even the emperor of Rome, before they just became the Pope. Because right before the before the Pope, like there was a period where the the head of Rome was was an emperor for for a period, and they actually had. Very real tangible temporal power. Um, but even after they became just the Pope, uh, they were effectively the king of kings, which meant that they could tell any other king in Europe, in Christendom, to do something, and those kings had to follow it as a an order. Uh, so the Pope necessarily, like, that's one of the reasons the Pope and the Vatican doesn't actually have a lot of land now, is because for a long time they effectively controlled all of Europe, because they were the king of kings. Um, and you could look back and Venice, <laughs> Venice has a history of being like of, of specifically refusing the Pope's uh, dictates, like <laughs> a dozen times over the Middle Ages. The Pope's like, "No, you need to do right. this." and they're just like, "How about no. We're not going to do that because what are you going to do? We have all the trade, all the money. like what do you, you can't they They're surrounded by miles and miles of marshland. You can't even get a trebuchet close enough to hit the city. From the land, so what the fuck are you gonna do? Eh. Yeah, and how about no? Yeah. We're yeah, not gonna no, do what you want. No. And
1: it So that's so how they're able to operate independently like that. Exactly,
0: and in many ways, you know, New York is very similar because it's this kind of island, a couple of islands. Um, it's the center of commerce in all of North America for a long time. I'm sure, especially as uh, you know, post Civil War, once we once America moved away from agriculture and in towards uh, industry. And so you have these five families that are set up. But But unlike For the sure. Doge, there's no specific leader of the five families, only kind of probably a de facto leader. They,
1: the commission always had a, had a de facto leader, yes. say so right. in the early days, that, that de facto leader would have been Luciano. Mm-hmm. Uh, but later on, uh, after he was deported to Sicily, yep. uh, power sort of passed on to Carlo Gambino. Uh, who was a very, very uh, streetwise uh, criminal okay. uh, who built up the Gambino family into being, for a number of years, the largest cr- crime family in the, uh, in, New-, in uh, New York City.
0: Okay. Right, so whoever's the largest of the five is de facto head.
1: Yes. Of course, he made a uh, big mistake upon his uh, his deathbed in a sense that uh, he passed on power to someone who he should not have passed on power to. To Fredo? Well, not so much to Fredo, <laughs> uh, but as to someone who was... Uh, the, the Gambino family was really split between the blue-collar w- wing and the white-collar wing.
0: Interesting, okay.
1: Uh, and uh, the blue-collar wing was led by uh, his underboss, Ani- uh, Anilo Della Croce. Okay. And many expected for Della Croce to take over after Gambino died. But he ended up passing power over to Big Paul Castellano, mm. uh, who didn't have ties with the blue-collar wing.
0: And we're talking blue-collar as in, like, blue-collar workers. That's what we mean? Or... Uh,
1: but The blue-collar wing would, say, be involved in... Uh, Longshoremen, like that sort of thing? Hi, uh, more like hijacking trucks, okay. uh, extortion, uh, murder for hire. Uh, more clear criminal activity. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, street loan sharking. Okay. As opposed to, say, kind of on the, on the white-collar side, say, you know, controlling, you know, the garment district of the city, for example, through union power.
0: So more indirect criminal activity. Yes, yes. Uh huh.
1: And uh, Castellano uh, uh, was head of the family for about eight years uh, before uh, John Gotti uh, and uh, his gang eventually uh, took him out.
0: And then consolidated power of the Gambinos.
1: And this is in 1985. (laughs) This is outside uh, Spark Steakhouse in uh, downtown New York City.
0: Which is uh coming up. Netflix's uh, the Irishman covers this whole story.
1: Uh that's actually uh the uh crazy Joey Gallo and Umberto's clam house. Okay. sorry, uh,
0: different uh this year this year is different, except uh okay.
1: Sparks is still in existence today. One okay. one can go there. Mm-hmm. It's the middle of downtown Manhattan.
0: Is it in Little Italy?
1: Uh it's not in Little Italy. Okay. Uh, but it was one of Big Paul's uh, favorite restaurants. Okay, and uh, they uh, whacked him outside of the uh, outside of the restaurant. Yeah, him and uh, one of his capos, Bilotti, uh, who would have been his under, would have been his effective underboss.
0: Okay, so I'm kind of getting the idea. It was really interesting? So this uh, Lucky Luciano is this young up and comer, and he takes advantage of almost like what is that movie? Um, the Bodyguard? Yojimbo? Have you seen that one? I haven't actually. This is a beautiful film. They remade it with Bruce Willis, which is like almost a shot-for-shot remake of the film. But the original is a Kurosawa film, which is like much better in many ways. Huh. Uh, it's called *Yojimbo*, which translates to the Bodyguard. I think the Bruce Willis one is called *The Bodyguard*. And the story is uh, a Ronin, you know, a, a masterless samurai, walks into a small town. Uh, which is just, you know, the uh, Kurosawa was obsessed with Western films because he was making films in the in the fifties, and so what's interesting is that he shows. And now this is like you could debate it in terms of like pure academia, but he shows his kind of uh, Tokugawa period uh, Japan. This is like pre-opening up, pre-modern Japan, as a very Wild West type of Japan. So you have these small towns in the middle of nowhere that uh, visually and uh, societally mimic these small towns that uh, our heroes on horseback ride into in the Westerns. And you know they have like one uh, saloon and one this and one this, and it's just a small group of farmers in the middle of nowhere. Um, the way that Kurosawa right. shows these towns is very similar. These kind of isolated little towns, they don't have any real control. Um, there's no connection in terms of overarching government, or if there is, it's a local um, baron who may or may not be corrupt, who represents the government, uh, or uh, there's there's a local official who might be a total, I think in the case of Yojimbo, like a totally useless person because the, the town is actually in control by mobsters, basically, effectively. Right. So, um, And for people who already know the story, this is maybe a little bit boring, but um, in Yojimbo, this Ronin shows up and he realizes very quickly that the town's under, uh, there's this kind of civil war going on between the two criminal factions of this small town Uh, and they're fighting each other for control and all the people are really terrified. So he sells himself to one side and then Kind of screws them over and sells himself to the other side, <laughs> and then he kind of screws them over and sells himself to the first side. And the whole film, you're kind of saying, like, what's his what's he want? Like, what's his uh, what's his end game here? This right, right, and and he's he gem- trying what's he trying to achieve? What's, what's he, he trying to achieve with, 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 the,
1: this? with these moves? Are they strategic?
0: Is it strategic? Does it he just of, not is give it a practical? shit?
1: Is it, does he not give a shit? Is exactly. he someone who's just reckless?
0: Yeah. Or is
1: this part of a strategic
0: plan? Exactly. And in the end, you kind of realize. I think the reason that he makes that he's kind of heroic is that, uh, spoiler alert. But the the end game is that he's acting chaotically and working fully with these criminals, but in a way to make both of them end up losing, and actually save the town in a way. Right. Uh wow. now he almost dies, of course, in the process and it's like a lot of cool but it's a really, really fun film, a lot well, of back it's very and heroic forth. Of a, and yeah. I, haven't, I haven't
1: seen this film, and I'll have to check this really out. Really good actually. film. It sounds quite interesting. Yeah,
0: Bruce Willis, the Bruce Willis bodyguard is almost like a shot for shot remake of the entire thing. I think it's set in like the nineteen thirties. It's like very similar to um, this kind of early gangster. Hmm. But to go back, Luciano is kind of playing this game of he comes in, he's a part of one crime family. He kind of joins the other one to help them take down the first one, and then he kind of takes down the one that he just helped and ends up on top of both of them, or on top of this kind of unified now. Uh,
1: that's, that's basically right. Uh, but uh, what, what's, what's, what's very interesting is that uh, he doesn't take control himself, in a sense that his plan mm-hmm. wasn't to become the new boss of bosses. Right. He wanted to divide power and create this board of directors structure well, and, and uh, this was uh, basically kind of drawn up by him and Meyer Lansky, mm-hmm. who was one of his top uh, one of his top guys, mm-hmm. who could never join the mafia himself because he was Jewish.
0: Right. Right.
1: Uh, so you know they were still exclusive in that sort of respect. Right. Uh, but uh, he was one of the persons uh, who was heavily influential in terms of drawing up this sort of new board of directors style.
0: Well, and what's what's interesting about that is it's also just extremely clever from a political standpoint. Right. politically um, Luciano just proven by by exploiting it himself that this single person in charge is always far too much at risk for maybe they can get in power within for a few years at most or something but because they' it's there's so much it's 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 just a, too small of a point to balance and it's a very clever political maneuver to to diversify that control and create an odd number of uh, families is what he would have called them, right? Sure. Um, sure yes. that now all share a common interest in maintaining their own power. and by and to maintain their own power, they have to ensure that each other is also safe because uh, otherwise if one you know if one family disappears, uh, you still need to replace that power structure with someone else. You can't just consolidate it and now have four families because then all of a sudden now all of the families are more at risk.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So it's a very clever way to actually maybe lo- – he might not be the effective capo di tutti di capo, but he's much safer in many ways.
1: Uh, he, cer- he certainly is. He certainly is. Uh, that's how the commission protected
0: themselves. hmm. Interesting.
1: Now, we talked about this in the first Mob Talk, actually, very, very briefly, Mm -hmm. but you might ask yourself, just because, again, this is, you know, one of the more famous hits in mob history, Mm -hmm. uh, and the taking out of a boss of, uh, at the time, the largest uh, crime family in New York.
0: The Gambino's.
1: Yes. Uh, But, say, in terms of uh, Big Paul being taken out, we'd say to yourself, well, hang on a second, he's a member of the commission, right? so why is John Gotti walking around the streets afterwards? Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, but the fact is is that uh, a hit was put out on John Gotti. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Uh, and uh, outside a uh, bar in Bensonhurst, uh, this was uh, set up by uh, a couple members of the Lucchese crime family Okay. who, with uh, the Genovese crime family, were outraged by the execution of Big Paul Castellano because they had business ties with them. Right. They were absolutely outraged, especially... Right. Vincent the Chin Gigante, the head of the Genovese family. Okay. Uh, which was uh, the most sophisticated of all the families. Oh, okay. Uh, they called uh, him the Chin. Interesting. Although you, nobody could ever speak his name, uh, the Chin, on the street. Right, the, we did talk about this last time, yes. I think.
0: He was like the Voldemort of uh, of the mob.
1: You can only ever touch your Chin if you were ever to refer to him. Oh, cool. In, uh, in, say, a conversation. Makes it a lot harder to convict. <laughs> yes, but, but he was very much outraged, mm-hmm. uh, and so... Uh, they did plot to kill John Gotti, and they thought they did get him, actually, because uh, he was coming out of a bar. Uh, well, he was in a bar in Bensonhurst, mm-hmm. and two people got into a car, yeah, into a limo, and uh, they thought that one of the gentlemen, uh, who was actually uh, Frank DeChico, the consigliere of the family, mm-hmm. who looks a lot like John Gotti, okay, they thought it was John Gotti. Okay. And so Gas Pipe Caso and a couple others from the Lucchese family blew up the car. Okay. Uh, killing uh, the Consigliere uh, mm-hmm. and another soldier in the family.
0: Okay. Uh, but they, not they,
1: Gotti. They then decided to kind of call this a one for one, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then a truce was brokered. Interesting. And so John Gotti was allowed to maintain his power in that respect. But the fact is, is that, uh, you know, they did try to get him. Right. And so, you know, this commission structure.
0: But after a certain point It still
1: worked even up to nineteen eighty five is what we're talking right. about. Like, well, we're not talking as, like this lasted for sixty years.
0: And after a certain point, too much retribution becomes war again, and then the whole point of like it becomes bad for business again. So sure. after yep. a certain yes. point, I'm sure the you know there's there was two other families we didn't hear about and you know, you have the these two families that try to get gaudy and then gaudy they fail to. But now there's two other families who are like guys. Like at a at certain point we have to call this like done, because there's still business. So that, like even yes, when you have yes. three families enroiled in this vendetta, there's still two entities that can kind of come to the table as mediators.
1: Uh, you, you, you did, you did. You, you had the Colombo family uh, was sort of agnostic to the whole situation. Mm-hmm. And the Bonanno family, I'm not sure if they had been restored to the commission at that time, to be honest, actually. Because uh, mm-hmm. they were kicked off the commission uh, oh. after the uh, Donnie Brasco fiasco.
0: Oh, because they, they were the ones because who it was led just Brasco such in.
1: an absolute, absolute embarrassment that the fact that they would have an FBI agent. And everyone unanimously. One of their, their top soldiers yeah. for over six years, being introduced to everybody around town right as right. being a friend of theirs. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, so they were kicked off the commission for a certain number of years.
0: Okay, makes sense. So that kind of explains the structure of New York, which is interesting, and also, like, where it came from. At least where the, where the structure comes from that still exists up until you said even today, yeah?
1: It still exists up to this day, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, in 1985 was uh, the famous commission trial. Uh, the prosecutor was uh, one, uh, Rudolf Giuliani.
0: Oh, the crazy guy who's representing the president?
1: Uh, that is correct. Uh, at one point he was America's mayor and uh, a great hero. Uh, now he... He's an embarrassment. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's fully really destroyed his own legacy.
0: What is it? You either die a hero, or <laughs> <laughs> or you live to become the villain. <laughs> like this isn't the Dark Knight, okay? But <laughs> is <laughs> Giuliani Two Face? Is that? <laughs> but
1: but to a to, to, to a certain extent, that is sort of what what has happened here with Giuliani. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, uh, he was a uh, very uh, very ambitious prosecutor. Yeah, and uh, went after the commission in 1985 when one became known as the commission trial. Okay. Uh, and there the heads of the five families uh, were uh, put on trial. Wow. And uh, he won convictions uh, on every single one of them.
0: Wow. Except, of th- course,
1: uh, and I mentioned this in a previous melt talk, we don't have to get through it again in too much detail, mm-hmm. but uh, one of the uh, bosses wasn't... Really, the boss of the of the family. Right, he just stood in there. This was for the Genovese family because he was the front boss, Fat Tony Salerno, right. when the real boss was
0: Vincent the Chin Because Vincent was always one step ahead.
1: He was. He was known as the Odd Father. Hmm. Uh, he would walk down the street, uh, you know, wearing a bathrobe.
0: Oh right, yeah. Uh,
1: you know, uh, a few times the FBI busted into his apartment and he'd be in the shower uh, with a umbrella. And he would always be able to get a psychiatrist or two to say that you know this man is uh, not uh, right in in the head, Uh, and that you know he can't be the head of this family. And uh, this uh, charade went on for a few decades.
0: So it's funny is that these these things like you having watched you know like The Dark Knight and (laughs) and uh, Sopranos. You have these things that are taken and used in snippets in our pop culture, like the way that Tony Soprano, him in his bathrobe, become this kind of thing, which I'm sure is inspired by some of The Odd Father, where you have. Um...
1: Although The Odd Father, again, was walking in a bathrobe down the streets. I mean, he'd be walking down the streets a little Italy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, dressed weirdly and just like, you know, acting like, you know, like smelling the flowers, literally. Right. And, you know, if the FBI would be taking photos of this guy, and they go, well, this, he can't be the head of a major crime family. This doesn't make Clever. any sense.
0: Yeah, and then this reality becomes these snippets and moments in in fictional stories. Sure, sure. That yeah. are inspired. So we're getting on to an hour. I think next time what I'm interested in is kind of not only how the other cities, kind of like Chicago, um, came to be in terms of like... Chicago. It seems like it was just one man, really, who just kind of controlled.
1: Well, you had the Chicago Outfit, uh, initially run by a fellow named Moretti, and mm-hmm. this was taken over by Al Capone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Chicago Outfit exists uh, to this day, okay, uh, and uh, they really are one crime family, okay, uh, controlling the entire city of Chicago, as opposed to New York, divided amongst the five families.
0: Yeah, I'm interested to hear mm-hmm. kind of how that happened, as well as the the interconnection between. The families are uh, between the cities and the, the larger um, geographical kind of uh, splitting up of, of, of these regions.
1: Uh, uh, you know, and we can certainly talk about that in more detail. Yeah. Uh, I mean, alongside Luciano, probably, probably the most successful single gangster in American history was Tony Accardo, who took over after Al Capone. Uh, oh, okay. And is one of the few gangsters to have died with his family by his side at wow. age at age 82. Okay. Uh, and he ruled over the city of Chicago uh, for a good 50 years. Wow. Uh, no, you know, and was completely untouchable, hmm. except for an incident uh, in 1970 where his uh, house was robbed when he was out of town. That was
0: a stupid move. Whoever did that.
1: Uh, yes, it was actually uh, because uh, then uh, a number of bodies started showing up on the streets, and these were uh, in- individuals who were known to be uh, thieves, sophistic- like sophisticated, thieves. <clears throat> and in a sense, the mob didn't know who did it, but they just started acting,
0: uh, just taking out the trash,
1: basically taking out these thieves as an act of, as an act of retribution. Wow, and some consider it to be one of the stupidest crimes in the history of, uh, <laughs> of uh, American American organized crimes <laughs> to actually have robbed Tony Accardo's house.
0: Well, I remember I remember hearing an uh, interview with was it Louis Louis Armstrong who lived in uh, in the Bronx? Was it? I think it was Louis. This was um, I was ta- This is from you know Jazz One Hundred and One class that I took. This is uh, I'm not a huge jazz person myself, but. There was this great uh, look at. I think it was. I want to say it was Louis Armstrong, and I, you know maybe I'm wrong, but it was one of these great jazz men in American history, and he lived in um, just like a small brownstone in New York, and he was becoming like a millionaire. Right. And it's at a certain point they're like, like so that's like yeah that's Louis's house. You can just walk by like yeah it's his house. Yeah that's that's him. That's where he lives. And it was, like, still a rough neighborhood. It was, like, Harlem or the Bronx. And they're like, well, you know, don't you, think, uh, don't you think he would, like, be better to get, like, a nice big house in the suburbs or something? Or, like, at a full mansion or something like this? And people in the neighborhood are like, not everybody knows whose house that is. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Nobody's touching his house. Like, no, no. not only does everybody know, but everybody who's, like, walking around is keeping an eye out for him. So sure even if there's an idiot who's dumb enough to walk into that house everyone's keeping their eye out cuz this is a hero well
1: he very much was he very much was uh, he was certainly an icon in terms of music
0: yeah uh, i'm thinking the, it's one louis one but the it, greatest, i might uh, be wrong one of the greatest
1: but... american musicians of all time yeah
0: i just love that i love that kind of uh, I, I, yeah i just love that idea that like yeah you don't need to you don't need to go into uh, into like a gated house with a huge gate and all this personal security you just like be loved by your neighborhood, and you're going to be safe.
1: Right. Yes. Yes. And the same thing with these monsters. Uh, a lot sure. of people knew where they lived, mm-hmm. and a lot of people recognized their cars, and uh, they could park a car and leave it unlocked, and nobody would ever touch it.
0: Yeah, because you know who the hell it is, and you know what happens if you even scratch it. <laughs> you have to go on your knees and, like, beg forgiveness. Well,
1: you don't scratch a man's automobile. That's <laughs> certainly rule number one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's incredible. One of the last things I'll just say, because it's kind of unrelated, but my grandfather grew up in New York in the 30s. So he was a kid when this is all happening, and he's a, he's an Italian. So we have some funny stories in my Italian side of the family. Now, we're Southern Italians from Calabria. My great-grandfather came to New York in 1901. Uh, he was born in 1900, so he was just a baby.
1: Oh, wow, just in the turn of the century, amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then my grandfather grew up in the Depression, and my great grandfather was a stonemason and then became a foreman, and he hired uh, during the Depression for his uh, crew. He hired all ex-cons because ex-cons were the most reliable and loyal men, and so whenever you had a, a building, ins- a building inspector would show up onto the job site. Now, this is the type. This an example of one of the buildings he worked on was the Yonkers. Uh, post office. And he he worked on that and did the stonework for that and was a foreman. Um, but whenever you had a, a building inspector come on from you know New York uh, or Yonkers City building inspector, they come on and they're kind of allowed to walk around and look at everything, and uh, they'd be surrounded by all these towering six foot ex cons.
1: Right, right.
0: And they would just say, uh, "Mr. Santillo, there's someone here to see you." and make sure that this guy didn't get to see anything until... Because anyone who works construction knows that, you know, you kind of do what you do, and when the inspector comes, you quickly tighten a few things and put a few things up and down so that it actually is officially passing inspection, and then you can go back to your job when they're gone.
2: Sure, sure. Uh, Because
0: sometimes just that's how it works. Um, Other times it's a little more sketchy. But, yeah, this story of these guys surrounding the building inspectors, uh, just to make sure that... uh, he wouldn't see anything wrong <laughs> and uh, these guys supposedly would would leave turkeys at, uh, at his house uh, for Thanksgiving and for Christmas for, my grandfather said for the rest of his, his father's life
1: Well they obviously had a deep debt of gratitude yeah. uh, in terms of uh, his hiring them on Well
0: and they were given steady employment at a time in the depression when no one would hire a convict, let alone someone who was qualified For sure Um, Now, of course, this leads me to think, and I'd have to do a lot of serious research, I don't know how I would even figure this out, but how much connection, whether my great-grandfather was just, let's call it clever (laughs) individual, or whether he had some actual (laughs) connections, because I also did hear some funny stories, I don't think this is just my family, but um, you pull up to a job, a big job, and this is the funny thing. Is also we're talking nineteen thirties or earlier. This is when New York Manhattan is being built, in many ways. A lot of these buildings are still going up. Right. You know, my grandfather was a water boy, uh, Broadway and fortieth, something like this. And still, there's like almost no buildings there. And they're they're putting in the foundations for some of these buildings that are now just part of what makes up the nonstop structure of Manhattan and uh so yeah he'd just pull up in his truck and he'd yell at the guys on the job site this is not his job site by the way my gran- great grandfather'd pull up <laughs> to someone else's job site and just start yelling at them and say hey hey the boss wants this material ba da 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 and he'd get these guys to to rob their own job site by throwing all this material on his truck and he'd drive off <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> some shady business right there. It's some shady business, for sure. But uh, this is what happens. When, and this is also, I mean, to be honest, this type of stuff still happens. I, when I was a kid, I would be on the job site you know, with my dad, um, more residential stuff. But I remember specifically one day, uh, we had a truck out in the front of a job site. It was a nice area, like a really nice area in Toronto. And uh, all of a sudden a bunch of us are, are running to the street and there's, like, tires squealing. And what had happened was uh, one of the guys had pulled up with his truck and just come in with his coffee or whatever. And he had left, like, a table saw and a couple other things in the back of his truck. And some dudes had just pulled up, grabbed the table saw, thrown in the back of their truck, and just skid it off. Because, huh. you know, a good table saw you can make some few hundred bucks for. sure. sure. So... You don't, you know, you kind of think some of this stuff is like turn of the century antics, but uh, uh, that sort
1: of street crime still takes place. That so type bad. of street I mean, crime still happens still call a the lot. People copper wire from uh, sites, yeah. from, from building sites.
0: Yeah, because it's it's all sorts of materials. It's material that is almost untraceable for the most part, and it has extreme real value, because sure, you know, it actually is like, these useful tools, and these useful tools, you know, you can have them. For, uh, and they, and, they and make... as
1: you said, they are relatively untraceable. Yeah. And so therefore, they're easy to move.
0: Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's just,
1: all right, got a roll of copper wire. I don't know where the hell it's from.
0: Yeah, I can give you a good deal for it. But there's a funny <laughs> yeah, story. can give a deal
1: for it, exactly.
0: A funny story that my... This is going back to Broadway. Uh, my grandfather told me this story, and he was a water boy. Now, he was the son of the foreman at the time. So his dad, my great-grandfather having worked his way up to foreman, says, okay, I'll give my boy a, a job. But the thing is, I don't want any of my men thinking that I'm being nepotistic or being easy on my son. So the rule was that uh, my grandfather wasn't allowed to sit down once during the day.
1: Wasn't allowed to sit down?
0: Wasn't allowed to sit once. Wasn't
1: given a chair at all?
0: No, he wasn't allowed to. Like, it was a job site. He was the water boy. His job was literally just to run around giving these guys water. He was like 16. Well, that's a Maybe 14.
1: Reminds yeah. me of my security guard days when I wasn't allowed to sit down to banks.
0: Right, 12 hours just standing, right? It's not easy. It sucks. Yes. Let alone of course, having I was to... in
1: air-conditioned banks, let alone being in the sun. Oh, this is, this so, is so, so... on a job
0: site schlepping back and forth water all day. I mean, now, the, obviously, the guys you're helping are working harder than you. They're, you know, These are guys who are doing stonemasonry work when you had, like, 50 guys chipping away at the stone, um, like a symphony. But... Uh, my grandfather was working on one of these buildings. He said, "Yeah, so they're you know blasting out the the foundation because New York is on bedrock. That's why they can build so high." Mm-hmm. And uh, now he probably knows the exact cross street, but this is up in like 50th, 60th Street and Broadway, so it's still pretty much downtown these days. And they're they're blowing out the foundation with dynamite. And this is the huh. in the 30s, and at one point they're just like, yeah, we just got to speed this up. Let's just put a little bit more in.
1: Let's put a little bit more in.
0: And uh, the explosion was so big that it like broke windows all up and down the street. It embedded shrapnel into the church opposite the street. Oh, no. It was a severe so problem. So now
1: you get the church on your ass.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, that's a problem.
0: But this is just because, like... <laughs> And this is the type of thing when whenever I hear people especially these a lot of you know a lot of people who are in the on the right wing for the most part who are like ugh these uh, all these loops we have to jump through with uh, paperwork for buildings it's bullshit and It's like <laughs> <laughs> do you've any idea how ridiculous builders are and like how much they're just going to be like oh, I'll save a few hours by just like instead of one dynamite stick I'll put in two <laughs> 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 there's a reason we have all of these uh all these people doing inspections and oversight and engineering, sure, and sure, sure, Getting your plans well, this kind checked. Kind of red
1: tape gets you know built up over time. It does get built a up over time. result of safety incidents and trying to mitigate against them.
0: And because when it comes down to it, when people are working all the day and they're trying to just save a few hours because you can make a you know save some money or make some more profit, and these guys aren't necessarily the biggest geniuses in the world. Uh, and some of them are really clever, but also uh, some of them are absolute idiots. And when you get tired, you're working fucking twelve hours a day with your body. You don't think too clearly, and you try to cut oh, a corner, well. and that can end up with you know at best exploding a couple windows, but at worst people die.
1: That's true. That's true. Yeah. So. Well, luckily in this situation nobody died, and. Uh, luckily, no. Everything worked out. Just a few windows broken.
0: Just a that's, few windows broken. That's and not I, that's
1: not that's not such a bad thing.
0: A few dollars paid to the church, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised about that. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, he tells the story. The most amazing part is like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is like an open job site you're just blasting in downtown Manhattan. You couldn't do that today. You just couldn't. No. You'd have to shut down the whole street. Yes, yes. For blocks. This is back when it would just be like, all right, yeah, okay. Just (laughs) (laughs) burn the hole. (laughs)
1: I think we need more dynamite.
0: Yeah, Eh, fuck it, use it all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but definitely I've always, growing up, I've always wanted to know kind of, you know, uh, whether whether people like it or not, (laughs) all these Italian families from New York and from different places in America, how much connection was there to the mob? How much was it just racism around, you know, oh, it's Italian, therefore they're criminals? How much was uh, just being? Because at the time, being an Italian immigrant, you were kind of technically a person of color at the beginning of the 1900s. And uh, was it they just would
1: be, they were discriminated against? You yeah, and same, just trying to with make Jewish a buck. Same thing with Irish immigrants. Yeah. yeah.
0: So sometimes, you know, you're just trying to make a buck. You're just trying to trying to get by like anyone else in America. And at the end of the day, grabbing a few boards off of a job site. How much different is that than? Uh, I mean, or how much worse is that than, like, the actual type of fraud that goes on in the upper echelons of the white-collar corporate America?
1: It can be a lot worse in terms of white-collar crime.
0: Yeah. Right? Certainly. So, okay, I think this is a very fun (laughs) little mob talk. I want to get back into it next time. We'll talk about kind of, now that we have a grounding on uh, on New York, let's kind of look at how the other cities... Started up how they connect
1: and we definitely can we can talk about the building of Las Vegas as well
0: yeah that's that's another era. that's kind of the next era as well and a little bit of a way for sure cool alright well thanks again Simon oh, fantastic. for joining well, thank you for having me on thanks everyone for listening one very and all very much enjoyed the conversation and uh, until next time you know uh, with the annex <laughs> <laughs> excellent Okay, thanks once again for listening. This was myself, Coy, joined by Simon Chernin. We said it a few times, but I always got to repeat. And uh, speaking of repeat, we'll be back soon. Simon Chernin definitely will be joining us. We got some more mob talk to go through, as well as, I think, going back to maybe some further, deeper annals of history. So until then, we might have another few guests coming up a surprise for uh, both for so you the viewers and myself so thanks for listening to the Annex